This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a remote, storm-ravaged island in the Pacific. And in 1943, it was the site of a gory but little-known battle involving more than 10,000 American and Japanese soldiers. Beneath the barrage of a battleship's guns, United States forces move in to drive the Japanese from rocky, fog-bound Attu, strategic island in the Aleutian chain. Troops waiting for the zero hour. In that grainy wartime newsreel, waves of American troops land on the island's shores. But for Denver author Marco Masic, the story of Atu comes down to two men. One, a Japanese soldier who'd studied in the United States, then reluctantly joined the Japanese army. And the American who killed him. Omasic's new book is The Storm on Our Shores, and welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. The Japanese soldier is Nobuo Tatsuguchi, known to his friends in the U.S. as Tatsi or Paul. And his life was full of uh, contradictions. Tell us about him before World War II, before he ended up on Atu. He's a Hiroshima native who had converted to Christianity, a Seventh-day Adventist and a pacifist. So as a Christian in Japan, he's already kind of a minority of a minority. He comes to California to go to college and then med school, graduates from Loma Linda University, falls in love with America. His girlfriend comes over from Japan. Uh, He proposes to her at Yosemite, and they take off on one of the first Greyhound bus trips, go from Los Angeles to Niagara Falls. I mean, you can't get more American than that. He returns from his honeymoon, and there's a family crisis. He has to rush back to Japan, and Pearl Harbor happens. And so he's conscripted against his will to fight America, the nation he loves. Let's get to this other soldier, American Dick Laird, who killed Tatsuguchi on the last day of this terrible battle for Atu in May 1943. Laird grew up in Appalachia. He was poor, dropped out of school to work as a coal miner. I want to get to a scene in your book that's actually decades after the war, though. Laird drives up to a house in Southern California. Tell us what happened. Dick Laird had been wrestling with nightmares for four decades from his war service. And he finds this house in California, knocks on the door, and a woman answers. The woman's got five-year-old twins. And Laird gets nervous and just starts babbling about how he loves to raise orchids. He's retired. And the woman says, I don't have time for this. It's nice to meet you, but goodbye. And so Dick Laird turns around, goes to his car, and kind of over his shoulder, he says, oh, by the way, I'm the one who killed your father. And he drives off. This is how you open the book. And indeed, he had walked up to the home of Tatsy's daughter. She was very, very young when he was killed on Atu. She was three months old. Her mom was pregnant when Paul Tatsuguchi was shipped out. She never really even knew him. or Her only real knowledge of her father was just as pictures of the wall in the house. And here this man had come out of nowhere and said that he was the person who had killed her father. And so Laura Tatsuguchi Davis was distraught. And it would take years for the story to unfurl from there. Tatsuguchi, as we said, trained as a surgeon in the United States, then is back in Japan, gets conscripted, as you say, against his will. He's a pacifist. How did he feel then about serving in the military, let alone against folks 
that he had come to love Americans. He was torn. Uh, He was torn by duty to his country, torn by duty to his family, and especially torn by duty to his faith. The way that he justified it in his mind was that he was a surgeon. He could help through healing rather than waging war. To me, there are two other characters in this book, although they're inanimate. Uh, One is a diary that Tatsuguchi kept through the weeks of fighting on Attu, and a diary which Laird recovered from his body after the final battle. We'll talk more about that. Uh, But the other character really is the island of Attu. You call it miserable and far from civilization. It was part of the Alaska Territory back in the day, but it was so far west that mapmakers drew a curve in the international dateline around it so that Attu and the United States were on the same day. Not just, not the same hour, the same day. You were able to go to Attu. What were your impressions of this place? Well, first that we were so lucky to go there and to be there. Nobody's lived on Attu since 2010. Now, Attu's got some of the worst weather on earth. There are only eight days a year that, don't have snow, rain, sleet, or especially fog. Huh. I mean, the soldiers who fought in Attu would talk about they couldn't even see the end of their gun because the, the fog was so deep. And because Attu is at the confluence of the cold Bering Sea and the warmer currents from the Pacific, it's that swirling mix of cold and warm that just it, it creates this bizarre national phenomenon called Willowaz which are these hurricane force winds that rocket down from the 3,000 foot mountains and hit sea level. And there's no warning. They're spontaneous. When we camped on Attu, we had to bring gear that was like Everest quality tents. I had my mountain hardware Trango. I'm laying there and I thought, wow, somebody's landed a jet on the island. How is this happening? And then whoosh, (laughs) the tent is just, it's leveled. And that's just the force and the sound of the wind. Out of nowhere, these Willowas come. I mean, Attu is a really difficult place to be. It's a really difficult place to live. And, I and just, I can't imagine fighting a war there. Exactly the notion of fighting a battle in that environment. In a way, your enemy is nature and the other side. You, you happened upon this whole story because you had another connection to Attu. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, my first book was on, of all things, competitive bird watching. And because Attu is so far out there, it's actually closer to mainland Asia than it is to the mainland or North America, birders would go every year during migration with hopes that this notorious bad weather would blow migrating birds off course from Asia to North America. But when I started researching the history of this island, Attu, the Japanese had invaded and conquered part of North America during World War II. You know, the first U.S. soil lost since the War of 1812, the only ground battle of World War II fought in North America. I didn't know all that stuff. I'm glad you said that, that you didn't know all that stuff. This is not well-known history, this battle. No, and part of that is because it's really, in a lot of ways, a shameful chapter in the history of both countries. Japan sent a garrison of 3,000 men to this outpost, this island that nobody had heard of, and then they abandoned them. The U.S. blockaded the island, and so the 3,000 Japanese troops were left to run out of food, run out of ammunition. And it was awful. The government just left them. The U.S. took a large uh, number of soldiers, tens of thousands of men who had been training in the Mojave Desert of California. They were preparing to fight Rommel in North Africa, Mm. and they diverted them to Alaska to fight. 
They were told that it would take three days to take this island back from the Japanese. They needed three weeks on some of the worst weather on Earth, and the casualty rate of this battle was exceeded in the Pacific War only at Iwo Jima. What was the interest in Attu on the American side and on the Japanese side? Well, on the Japanese side, the invasion of Attu makes sense only if you look at a map. If you are in Tokyo, here is an island that could be a a midpoint, a waypoint for launching a forward attack on the west coast of the United States. The problem is when you actually get on the ground, uh, you can't take off and land planes because the fog is so constant and so dense. You can't even really build runways or roads because you walk on the muskeg and it's like walking on a sponge or, or a little trampoline. You go up and down, there's mud that you sink down to your thighs. So the reality is that it's an awful place, not a good place to fight a war. Now, that's on the Japanese side. On the American side, the only reason was that the other guy was there. Mm-hmm. There was no strategic reason to fight a war on Attu, and yet thousands of men lost lives, lost limbs. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, the only ground battle in World War II fought in North America. It took place in May 1943 on the remote, forbidding island of Attu in the Aleutian chain. And it's where an American-educated Japanese surgeon named Paul Tatsuguchi died. He left behind a diary that provided a first-hand account of his time on Attu and of his love for family. It haunted the GI who killed him for decades. The story is told in the new book, The Storm on Our Shores, from Denver author Marco Masic. I asked Mark to describe how Tatsuguchi spent his final days as it became clear the Japanese were losing the fight. One of his days was wake up, perform surgery on soldiers who had become embedded with shrapnel, do amputations, and duck bombs. Uh, He did all this in caves in unlit places with diminishing supplies. He was getting the full force of one of the most powerful militaries on Earth. Tell me about this suicide pact the Japanese soldiers made and how that plays into the Battle of Attu. Well, the code for Japanese soldiers held that you should never be taken as prisoner. Don't be taken alive. Death before dishonor. In fact, Japanese soldiers, when a few, a handful, were captured by U.S. troops, And they willingly told them everything they knew. They had never been trained to say, here's what you do if you're captured because you weren't supposed to be captured. You were supposed to shoot the enemy. And if the enemy was going to get you, then you kill yourself. I wonder what he thought of that as a physician, a surgeon. He was a devout Christian. And his favorite Bible verse that he brought with him in his family Bible to add to was the verse from Deuteronomy, therefore choose life. And so Paul Tatsuguchi had many patients who wanted to be given the tools to kill themselves because they didn't want to be captured by the U.S. And yet as a doctor, an American-trained doctor, you take the Hippocratic Oath, what do you do? Do you give them the tools to, to do that? Did he? It's unclear. It's unclear. It's unclear. Finally, there comes a day when Tatsuguchi and Dick Laird face each other on the battlefield. Describe what you know of that encounter. Well, in the end, a Japanese garrison of 3,000 men is down to as little as 500. And they gather to mount one final bonsai attack. And Dick Laird 
wakes up that morning and sees above him on a knoll, there is an American mortar that's been captured by a group of Japanese soldiers, and they are turning it back at the Americans, and they're going to load a shell. Hmm. And Dick Laird sees that this is terrible, and so he goes and he throws a grenade, and he kills or wounds eight Japanese soldiers there. Some are still alive. He goes up again and makes sure that they're no longer alive. When he does that, he looks on the ground and he finds an address book that's full of names with people from California, and he finds a diary. He doesn't know it at the time. It's written in Japanese, but he tucks it in his pocket. He hopes there's strategic information in there, and he passes it along to his superiors later to be translated in in the rear lines. Ultimately, this diary becomes legendary among American troops. This diary is uh, translated and transcribed and passed around and mimeographed and does the World War II version of going viral. Uh, U.S. troops had been told all throughout their boot camps, all throughout their training, that Japanese soldiers were these heartless, conscienceless killers. And yet here's a diary who shows that the enemy is a father like them. He's got two daughters he really misses. He loves his wife. It's really easy to kill an enemy. It's really hard to kill a man. And that diary really changed the impression of many Americans about who they were really up against. It seems that Tatsuguchi knew from the way the fight for the island was going that the Japanese were going to lose. His last entry, written before that final battle, reflects this. Would you read this excerpt? May 29th, battle. Today at 2000, we assembled in front of our headquarters. The field hospital took part too. The last assault is to be carried out. All the patients in the hospital were made to commit suicide. Only 33 years of living and I am to die here. I have no regrets. Banzai to the emperor. I am grateful that I have kept the peace of my soul which Christ bestowed upon me. At 1800, took care of all the patients with grenades. Goodbye, Taeko, my beloved wife, who loved me to the last. Until we meet again, grant you Godspeed. Misako, who had just become three years old, will grow up unhindered. I feel sorry for you, Matsuko, born February of this year, and never will see your father. Well, goodbye, Machan, his brother. Goodbye, Sachan, Teshichan, Michan, nicknames for his sisters. The number participating in this attack is a little over a thousand to take enemy artillery positions. It seems that the enemy will make an all-out attack tomorrow. Now, when he says, I provided grenades to the remaining soldiers, does he mean as armament or does he mean to kill themselves? It means whatever we think huh. it means. Uh, there, Gosh. I found 10 different translations of the diary. Uh, some diaries include the phrase that uh, he gave the patients grenades and some do not. Uh, the U.S. used this diary afterward for big propaganda purposes. It's horrific, the notion of a Japanese doctor slaying his own patients. And yet, Everything that we know, everything that I know about Paul Tatsuguchi would be contrary to that. But what do you do when your commanders order you to do something? My own belief is that Tatsuguchi may have given grenades to patients because they requested them in the same way that someone on death's doorstep may ask for uh, a lethal injection. Huh. 
but it's a great mystery of what actually happened, and it's still argued about considerably today. So the fight for Attu ends. Uh, Dick Laird stays in the Pacific, fights in several other well-known battles. Ultimately, he receives the Silver Star for his actions on Attu, but he cannot shake the memory of what happened or of the diary. What was life like for him after the war? Difficult. He was traumatized by nightmares every night of what he had done. Uh, He was a good soldier. He did what his country asked him, but it left such a deep wound on his psyche. He really was never physically hurt in a big way, but mentally was crushed. Why don't we circle back to where we began? Dick Laird finds Paul Tatsuguchi's daughter, Laura, living in Southern California. So Dick Laird left Laura's house that day, not really knowing what to do. He had wanted to talk to the daughter of the man he killed, and yet he didn't really. But he let it fester. He he drops this bomb, for lack of a better term. He says, I'm the one who killed your father. And uh, Laura didn't talk to Laird for years after that encounter. Uh, But it did prompt her to do a lot of research to learn more about her father, who again, who had died when she was just three months old. Laura had always known how her father had died, but she didn't really know how he had lived. Hmm. So she launched a big quest to research Uh, his life. And she eventually got to the point where she felt that she knew enough about her father and she knew enough about what Dick Laird had done that she called to arrange a meeting. How'd that go? They talked and they were polite, but Laura said she could tell that Dick Laird was really troubled. And Laura went home and she thought about it. And she wrote one of the most eloquent letters that I can imagine. Laura's a intensive care nurse. And she told Dick Laird, forgive yourself. Give yourself peace. You did what you had to do. Relieve yourself of this burden. And Laura had strong faith as well. And she saw it as her Christian duty to grant atonement. And when Dick Laird received that letter, he said that was the first night in years he had slept without nightmares Mark thank you for being with us thanks for having me Marco Masic of Denver has written The Storm on Our Shores One Island Two Soldiers and The Forgotten Battle of World War II Notre Dame has been declared structurally sound after a fire tore through yesterday. The cathedral is an icon for many reasons, as a religious place, as an architectural feat. It also holds a special place in the hearts of musicians. Melanie Campbell is an opera singer from Thornton. Last summer, she sang at Notre Dame with the University of Northern Colorado's choir. I remember looking up and noticing how high the ceilings were and the light that came through the stained glass. It was purely just heavenly is a good word for it. It was absolutely beautiful. Campbell is a doctoral student at UNC and her choir sang mass at the 856-year-old cathedral. 
The acoustics were amazing. You could just hear it ring throughout the cathedral. And the funny thing was is that for the most part, it was very quiet in there, regardless if it was during Mass. Even after Mass, there was so much respect for the space of everyone who entered it that you could hear a pin drop. You really could. And so when we sang, the acoustics just rang in every corner that was in the space. It's a very, very long cathedral. You could hear it from the altar all the way out the door. As a classically trained opera singer, Campbell has toured all over Europe, Italy, Germany, Spain. But she says Notre Dame is one of the places she wanted to sing most. Notre Dame itself is one of the pinnacles of sacred spaces that you want to check off your choral and musical bucket list. It's, it's very, very special to any musician, for sure. Campbell has been in touch with members of her choir since the fire, mostly over social media. It's such a tragedy that has touched us all because we were there not too long ago. And just to know that this beautiful space is it's in trouble, it is truly an amazing piece of history that deserves to be saved. Opera singer Melanie Campbell of Thornton recalling her performance at Notre Dame last June. We searched for recordings made in Notre Dame and came across an article from the CBC which suggested that the last artist to record in the cathedral before the fire was Olivier Latry. He's offering us a sample here of his album Back to the Future from January. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A note that the following story includes adult themes and may not be appropriate for young listeners. Anadarko Petroleum is the state's largest oil and gas driller. And according to a letter obtained and verified by CPR... It has had a toxic work culture for some women at the company. The letter alleges that top executives in Denver had sex in the office during business hours and then retaliated against and bullied those who witnessed or reported it. CPR's Ben Marcus is covering this story. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. Can you explain some of the specifics here? What exactly happened? So a year ago, we obtained this letter, and it took us months to corroborate it. And this letter, which demands a settlement from Anadarko, is written by attorneys of a woman, a former employee named Robin Olson. She says she witnessed these things firsthand. She alleges in the letter that it started around 2012. She went to work for a vice president named Scott Moore in Denver. Moore, she claims, had sex in the office next to hers about half a dozen times during business hours, and she could hear it. The letter says she reported it to an anonymous HR hotline. But as I understand it, people at the company figured out she was the one who'd reported it. 
Right. So that's where the alleged retaliation comes in. Now, I should say we tried to interview Robin Olson, who's no longer with the company, but she would only say that she resolved her differences with Anadarko. It's not clear how Anadarko and Robin Olson resolved things. So one of her bosses at the time did come forward and agree to an on-the-record interview, Chris Castilian. He worked for the company for about a decade, and he says this VP that Olson could hear having sex in the office next to hers was one of the most powerful people at the company. Yeah, it was terrible. I mean, you feel helpless and, you know, you're not able to kind of protect your your own folks. And, um, you know, my suggestion was is that she call the hotline and all the things that we are trained to do as supervisors as well as employees. So Castilian, he left the company in 2016. He says this backfired. It did ex- the exact opposite of what it was designed to do because it's, it um, it was very apparent to anyone who had called. Scott Moore, the VP, started to treat Olson poorly after she reported him to HR according to her letter. Castilian verified that Moore shut her out of meetings, snapped at her, to the point that others in the office took notice and were hesitant to use the HR hotline when new incidents surfaced. Now, this was at a time, you said around 2012, when Anadarko wasn't nearly as well known in Colorado. But now it's the largest driller here, as I said. And it's been in the headlines for a lot of bad reasons recently. Two deadly explosions. Uh, And, of course, the story of the Anadarko employee, Christopher Watts, who killed his family. Lots of terrible headlines, but it is still hard to overstate Anadarko's importance in Colorado. Last year, they pumped a staggering 39 million barrels of oil in Colorado. And they're also big players in state politics, about $18 million in campaign contributions in just the last few years. Before all that, though, according to our sources, just as the company was starting to raise its profile, some in its leadership ranks were engaging in this kind of lewd, disruptive, and bullying behavior. Ben, what did Anadarko or Scott Moore tell you when you confronted them with these allegations? So Anadarko sent a statement saying that it investigated the complaints against Moore and found no violation of company policy. But they acknowledged that there was a consensual relationship between him and this woman and that it was disruptive. We're not naming the woman. The company also noted that neither is with the company any longer. Now, with the VP, Scott Moore, we tried for months to get a comment from him, but he never responded. You mentioned that employees were hesitant to call that HR hotline when new incidents surfaced. So the stuff with Scott Moore wasn't the end of it, I presume. So after Robin Olson was burned in her attempt to report more, she found herself in the same situation with another Anadarko vice president. This time it was Brad Hawley. He's now the CEO of Whiting Petroleum, which is a smaller oil and gas company based in Denver. Now, Olson claimed starting at about 2015, she could hear Hawley having sex in the office with a different woman who we're also not naming. In her letter, Olson claims that Hawley and this woman bullied her, and we got confirmation of that. Um, from another of Robin Olson's bosses at the time, Chris Castilian. Okay, the executive, Holly, was allegedly treating this woman poorly, who accused him of having sex in the office. Did Olson report that in any way to the company? Apparently not officially. She did talk about it with another boss at the time, John Christensen, who she claims in her letter did nothing to help. When Olson later was seeking a settlement from the company, Chris Castilian signed an affidavit for Olson to bolster her case against the company. We obtained a copy of that document, and Castilian says Brad Hawley's in-office visits to his girlfriend disrupted the immediate office area. I mean, I signed an affidavit attesting to uh, many of those situations because I felt like it was the right thing to do 
And I had witnessed a lot of those, you know, allegations happen. In the affidavit, Castilian talks about how Olson confided in him at the time that she could hear the VP, Brad Hawley, having sex in the office. But Castilian says that no one wanted to officially report anything after what had happened to Olson previously. Did Anna Darko comment about this or has Brad Hawley commented? So Anna Darko, which was recently acquired by Chevron in a $33 billion deal, said that it had hired outside firm to investigate, but said that it couldn't comment any further because the matter is confidential. Brad Hawley sent us a statement saying, quote, it's unfortunate CPR has decided to publish a story based on nothing more than hearsay, while ignoring former colleagues who gave on the record statements in defense of my leadership, integrity and commitment to diversity and inclusion, unquote. Holly's attorneys arranged interviews for us with two former employees who spoke on the agreement of anonymity. They said he was a good and professional boss. They said they never saw Holly behave in an unprofessional way, and they never saw him bully anyone. Has Anadarko made any changes as a result of all this? I mean, you mentioned a company investigation. Well, the company let the first executive, Scott Moore, go just after we asked questions from Anadarko about these allegations last spring, even though, as I said, the company found he had violated none of its policies. Anadarko says that Olson's characterization of the corporate culture there is not accurate, that Anadarko employs 1,300 women in a culture of inclusiveness, and they say they've implemented more sexual harassment training for employees in the wake of these allegations. Ben, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Thanks for having me. CPR's Ben Marcus, and you can read more of his reporting on the workplace culture at Anadarko uh, at our website, CPR.org. Should state employees be able to collectively bargain? State lawmakers are weighing that question with a Democratic bill that would allow for this. It would be a big change for Colorado. CPR's Sam Brash is following this legislation and joins us. Hi, Sam. Hey, Ryan. Walk us through what this bill would do and exactly whom it would cover. Okay, so the, the bill would cement the ability of certain state workers to form unions, and it adds something really important, that they could bargain for wages, for benefits over their workplace conditions through contracts, right? That's what collective bargaining means. Oh. And it would cover uh, this category of state employees called certified employees. That's a technical term for most employees in the executive branch of state government. So think about prison guards, mental health care workers, snowplow drivers, stuff like that. What is the situation for state workers now? I mean, do they have any ability to organize? They do. So they they have the ability to form these things called uh, employee partnerships. And that comes out of a 2007 executive order from uh, former Governor Bill Ritter. And uh, it, it those employees' partnerships, they're kind of like unions light, right? It's its basically a union, but it usually lacks collective bargaining rights. It usually lacks the ability to call strikes. Um, so under this bill, one of those things would change. They could negotiate union contracts. Um, that's what collective bargaining is again. Okay. And so this, this current group is called Colorado Wins, right? Yeah. So Colorado Wins, you're right. That's the, it's the current state employee union. Um, and they're deeply involved in this. In fact, state lawmakers often call 
call this the wins bill the because wins they're bill. the one pushing it. Okay. What's their argument for why this is needed, that they need more than the groups you already described? They, they say it's needed to address a staffing crisis uh, in state offices and departments. Some quick numbers on that one. They say in the last decades, vacancies uh, for state jobs have gone up 73% to the point where one in every five of those certified positions we were talking about earlier are empty. And the organization says that means overworked employees, really low morale, and that Colorado citizens, taxpayers, uh, get hurt too, kind of with a one-two punch. They get worse services, and they also have to pay for these offices and departments to fill these positions. So I guess the idea is if you empower employees, if you give them more power, maybe more of them will come to work for state government. Exactly. Okay. What do critics, opponents say here? Uh, opponents say that, you know, they shouldn't hand more power to unions, that that could really hamstring uh control of state spending. So instead of lawmakers or the citizens or the governor having a say over the budget, these public sector unions would would be a big piece of the puzzle when it comes to deciding how the state spends its money. Um, I guess what I think is sort of interesting is I haven't seen a whole lot of the players that I would expect to be opposed to this really showing up in this fight. Um, Groups like, you know, Americans for Prosperity, a very well-funded group with, uh, you know, a long history of fighting these sort of public sector union um, increases in power, they haven't really stood up and said no to this. So that's something I'm still looking into is is where the opposition is really coming from. Right now, it's mainly lawmakers saying we we want our say over the budget. We want the governor to have a say over the budget. And this would hurt that. What sense do you have for how this bill will fare with lawmakers? Of course, we have Democratic majorities in the House, in the Senate, and then a Democrat uh in the governor. Yeah. So the Democratic lawmakers I've talked to, as well as Colorado Winds, say they're pretty confident um, that this will make it through both chambers of the legislature, because as you said, Democrats control both of those. The big wild card here is Governor Polis. Um, I asked his office about this bill, and they gave me this statement. Um, and it says, our staff and the executive agencies have reviewed the re- legislation and have some concerns about the ramifications for both the budget process and how it interacts with the classified system. That's the uh, basically the employee pay scale. Uh, We're actively working with stakeholders and sponsors on the specifics of the bill. So I think what you get there is some hesitance. And I think we should really be watching the governor as to, you know, determining the future of this thing. Sam Brash, talking with you, my sense is that... It's almost like this is flying under the radar to some extent. Yeah, and that's something that uh, you know has surprised me as well. As well, I mean, it's obvious that there's so much happening at the Capitol. This this has been a, a crazy legislative session, and so maybe it's not a surprise that some things have flown under the radar. I mean, on the other hand, you know, this this is something state workers have fought for for years. It would be a huge change to how the governor sets up the budget and how the state sends its money. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if this starts showing up more as we get closer to the end of the legislative session. So glad you could join us. Thanks. Thank you, Ryan. CPR Sam Brash, he covers the legislature. He also produces our state politics podcast, Purplish. You can subscribe to and listen to the latest episode about Colorado's first fractivist wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, when we come back, air conditioning and climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A new Colorado Public Radio podcast explores how a shooting 20 years ago changed the country. I want to bring you up to date at the shooting at Columbine High School. People of the community of Littleton, the prayers of the American people are with you. 
Now survivors of the attack have their own kids. I didn't really tell you about Columbine until you were 11 years old. And a whole scientific field has emerged to stop the next shooter. Search for Since Columbine wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. How do you keep people cool on a warming planet without making the problem worse? That's one of the challenges raised by the Global Cooling Prize, which has invited some deep thinkers to tackle the issue of air conditioning. Ian Campbell is senior fellow with the Rocky Mountain Institute based in Colorado, sponsor of this prize. Ian, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. I saw a flyer that says globally the prize is potentially the single biggest technology-driven action we can take to mitigate climate change. Quite a statement. What makes you say that? Yeah, and I, I, I think that you have to kind of look at what the trajectory is for air conditioning. And, you know, where we are today, um, air conditioning is you know, pervasive in certain countries and regions around the world, and notably here in the U.S., in uh, places like Japan, in Korea, and, um, and also in southern Europe. Uh, but where it's not pervasive is in the hottest and the most humid climate zones that sit within the tropics. And that level of growth of today's technology, uh, we just did the analysis looking at the residential segment, and we're looking at about half a degree of global warming by 2100, which is the baseline year that we all look to associated with the adoption of residential air conditioning. My and the opportunity is to find a better way to keep cool. So what you're talking about is uh, many places on the planet don't yet have air conditioning. But as things yes. get hotter, there will naturally be the desire and if that desire is met with current technology, uh, you've got a kind of big energy problem. Is it just a question of energy or is it also about the refrigerants in air conditioners? Yeah, and that's one of the challenges with air conditioning. It's a dual impact. It's the direct emissions that will come from refrigerant release through the life of the air conditioner. And it's about the electricity that the air conditioner consumes. And again, if we kind of look at the residential segment, it's about a four-to-one four ratio, the electricity to refrigerant. Uh, well, help me understand that, the electricity to refrigerant. Yeah, so th that's the uh, life cycle emissions. So around 20% uh, of the emissions impact or the global warming potential coming from operating an air conditioner is going to be based upon refrigerant release or leakage through the life of the unit plus end of life. And then the other 80% is going to be around the energy that the unit consumes to operate based upon a typical uh, life cycle operation. Okay, so both are potentially contributing to climate change. I, I get the sense, Ian, that air conditioning is kind of low tech and maybe old tech. So the idea yes. is to bring something fresh, something new, and something more efficient. Yeah, that's right. And it's one of the things that we um, looked at in our research before um, identifying a prize as a change model was what's the state of the industry. And yeah. when, when you look at residential and room air conditioning, which is kind of entry-level cooling for many people, um, the primary um, factors that 
people look at when they procure an air conditioner is typically going to be the cost, the brand, and the aesthetics, and convenience. Um, and so you've got an industry that's been focused on meeting lowest first cost because that's been the formula for success, as well as um, the marketing associated with brand building. And there hasn't been mass, much mass market innovation to transform the efficiency of the equipment. So our first room air conditioner was introduced to the market back in 1926 by Willis Carrier. And if we could bring him back to life, he'd probably recognize an air conditioner if we put it in front of him. Huh. There'd, be, there'd be some things like the digital controls would be new and different, but the fundamentals of the equipment would actually be the same. I mean, that's fascinating because I just think about the the progress of the phone I've had in my life. You know, I started out with a corded phone and now I have an iPhone that's already obsolete. Uh, why do you think there has been such little progress in air conditioning? You talked about some of the factors, but those are factors that affect other industries that have innovated. Yeah, they, 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 they do. I think that one of the things is that it's, it's kind of difficult to understand when you go to procure an air conditioner what the life cycle cost of the piece of equipment is. And, you know, we, um, around the world, there's different rating systems that people use, but a consumer who's in a store um, looking to buy a room air conditioner and they see one that costs maybe $150 more than the other that may save them $100 a year in operating cost. The $100 a year of savings in operating costs isn't real apparent, so they tend to pick the unit that's going to cost less money today, and that's what industry has served. So industry hasn't really been driving innovation of how do we get to a better, a, a better technology that uses less electricity has a lower climate impact. Okay. In walks Rocky Mountain Institute in Boulder with its global <laughs> cooling prize to add some energy to the market. And uh, can anyone compete? My, my Aunt Ida? Uh, or, or who is this? Anyone, anyone can compete. It gets progressively harder as we go through the process because um, the first thing we ask people to do, and, and the prize is open. It opened in November. We actually launched it in uh, New Delhi in India, which is the fastest growing market for cooling in the world today or air conditioning in the world today. Oh. Um, and the first step is you just have to register on our uh, Global Cooling Prize website. Uh, then you have to submit an intent to apply to describe the technology. Then you have to do a, a detailed technical application, including the engineering analysis of how it meets the criteria. And then if you get selected through that round, you get to develop a prototype that will go through three different testing protocols mm. to evaluate whether it meets the price criteria, which is basically an air conditioner that has five times less climate impact. Five times less, the that's the target. The popular unit being sold in the market in India today. In India. Well, yeah. what kind of uh, cool ideas, uh, sorry for that pun, are you getting? Uh, and maybe you can't give too much away because you don't want to play people's hands, but, but what are some of the solutions, and, and if you could explain this in layman's terms, that people are coming up with? Yeah, so um, we have around 1,500 um, people, organizations, corporations, including the world's largest air conditioning company that have already registered their intent to apply. And um, we see a brief summary um, of uh, those um, 
technologies as part of the intent to apply form. And there's um, kind of two main categories that I would say we're seeing. One is to take today's technology and take it uh, closer to the edge of what is theoretically achievable. And when we look at what most units are, and you look at the theoretical maximum performance, most units are going to be somewhere in a 10 to 20% range of maximum theoretical performance. That's, all, that's as far as the industry has come. So we're seeing technologies that take... Oh, let, let me just put that in a different way. Yeah. You're saying that current air conditioning units only achieve 10 to 20% of their energy efficiency potential. In other words, if, yes. if that were a grade in a class, 10 or 20%, I'd be well below F. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's a it's lot of staggering. Staggering, right? I mean, even getting an air conditioning unit to like a C would be a big deal. Seventy yes. percent. Yes, it would. Okay, and it would be a huge deal for uh, for our planet. So, so we're seeing um, approaches that can take today's basic technology, take it to the edge of performance that we think can hit the criteria. But we're also starting to see some next generation technologies and. Um, some of them actually really fascinating um, and see significant potential from an efficiency perspective. And also, a number of these don't use refrigerants. They have no working fluid as such. So we're seeing something called thermoelectric cooling. And thermoelectric is basically using semiconductor technology to have uh, effectively the chips be mini heat pumps. Um, so one side heats up, makes the other side cold, and that uh, cold or coolth, uh can be used for, um, for cooling people or spaces. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. This has just been fascinating. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was, uh, appreciate the opportunity to share some of what we're seeing with you, Ryan. Ian Campbell is Senior Fellow with the Rocky Mountain Institute in Boulder, which works on sustainability worldwide. It's sponsoring the Global Cooling Prize, a contest to create an Earth-friendly air conditioner. Finally today, survival stories turned into music. As This is Oscar Slodek of Denver. Ossi, as he likes to be called, was born in Czechoslovakia in 1935. Half his family died in the Holocaust, but he and his parents managed to survive by hiding, often in the wilderness. Ossi's always had a musical gift. He served in the cultural branch of the Israeli army playing accordion. Later, he was part of the L.A. folk scene. More recently, he's traveled around the country performing and sharing his survival story. A couple of years ago, he had an idea. It would be nice to uh, gather a few survivors who can sing and uh, record them with some songs from the Holocaust era. The only thing is, unfortunately, I should have done this like 20 years ago when there were still more survivors alive. At one point, when I came to Denver in 1960, there were about 200 survivors in Denver. We are down now to just a few who are still around. 
The resulting compilation titled Survivor Sing features five Denver-area vocalists, including Slotik himself, Paula Berger, Zachary Kuttner, Estelle Nadell, and the oldest of the group, Jack Wellner, who survived Dachau and Auschwitz. Jack is now 97 years old. But it's amazing <laughs> that he still sings. What can I tell you? <laughs> he still drives, and he sings, and he plays poker. A bissel zin, a bissel legen, a ruye godem kop zu legen, a biege zin, kem englikler sein. A schicha zok, a kleidon lattes in keschen, a dreifens lattes, a biege zin, kem englikler sein. Tomorrow, Slotik and his fellow survivors perform at Denver's Maisel Museum. The event also includes admission to the Abide Photography Exhibition, which features portraits of local Holocaust survivors. We asked Slotik which song he's most looking forward to sharing with audiences. The song Zognit Kainmo, Never Say, that's the English translation. That's one that I've been singing for many years because it's a song that uh, emphasizes the hope and the ultimate victory. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Welcome.